Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's program, our flu season update. With the flu, uh, it's droplets, and it's usually through coughing. If you're within three feet of someone and they're coughing, very likely that, uh, you know, you can be infected if they have the flu and you're not vaccinated. Plus, sleep, how to get it and how much you need. Fragmentation of sleep uh, leads to poor quality of sleep and uh, even a duration of nine hours may not be sufficient to satisfy the brain. And the importance of patient engagement in assuring positive health outcomes. And the question is, you know, is the doctor not doing his job or is the patient not doing his job? Non-adherence will defeat everything. We'll have our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse. That's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, Sleep, That Elusive State, we'll explore how much you need and how to get it, plus the importance of patient engagement in health outcomes. But first, what's up with this year's flu? what you need to know. Well, flu season is just around the corner, and the flu is a serious contagious disease that can lead to hospitalization and even to death. Well, here with more on all what you need to know to protect yourself and your family is Dr. Bruce Simmons. He's the Director of Employee and Student Health at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Simmons. Well, Thanks thank so you. much for coming in. Yeah. Let's begin by helping um, our listeners just with some important facts. What exactly is the flu? Well, you know, the flu is a viral illness. You know, common cold is a viral illness, but the flu is something much more severe. And those that get the flu generally can't continue in their normal daily activities. They become very ill, whereas with a cold, often we try to struggle through our, our day and, uh, and continue on. But with the flu, uh, the symptoms are such that it makes it almost impossible to do that. So it's a contagious respiratory illness, but can have levels of severity. But as you said, in many cases, it can be quite severe. What are some of the signs and symptoms that you would know that you ha- you're really having yes. the flu? Well, you know, it is a very highly contagious illness. And when uh, you're exposed, then generally within a day or two, you'll develop symptoms. Uh, you know, the range can go from one to four days, but it's usually somewhere in that, that second day that you develop a severe uh, onset of fever, uh, muscle aches, headache perhaps, uh, sore throat. Some people get a runny nose. Uh, but, you know, the thing is that you get this severe fatigue, almost that you can't continue. People say, it's almost like I got hit by a bus. And that's some of the ways that we kind of distinguish that from, say, a common cold, where the symptoms kind of come on over a few days. So how is the flu spread? I mean, is it spread differently than other respiratory diseases? Tell us a little bit about, I mean, there's always been talk about how actually these kinds of things spread from person to person. True. And, you know, there, there are a number of different, uh, a wide variety of respiratory diseases that spread differently uh, in some cases. But with the flu, uh, it's droplets. And it's usually through coughing. And if you're within uh, three feet of someone and they're coughing, very likely that, uh, you know, you can be infected if they have the flu and you're not vaccinated. So those droplets that they're coughing out will land either on your no- on your nose or your nasal, mu- nasal mucosa on your hands and you might touch your nose, that kind of thing? That's very true. And, you know, I like to use, uh, actually say, six feet because if you're beyond six feet, then you're probably not going to get infected. So there, you know, there's that area where if you're within a certain range, then you will get infected. And, of course, those droplets then... Uh, have to land somewhere, and often they'll either land on a surface, on a on a desk or a chair, or I like to think of you know at church, you know people cough and it's on the on the pews in a in a church, 
and they also cough into their hands, unfortunately. And then they have the, the uh, flu virus on their hands, and then they put their hands on a surface, or they shake your hand. Uh, so that's why it's very important not only to stay away from people that are coughing during flu season, but also to protect yourself by washing your own hands, using alcohol wipe on your uh, uh, cleanser on Anti your hands. Microbial. Mm -hmm. That's right. And then, of course, avoiding putting your hands to your eyes, your nose, or your mouth without cleansing them. So there's been some controversy as to when, if you have the flu, that you are contagious to others. It's been suggested that even a day before you show symptoms, you could still be contagious. That is true. I mean, you know, over the last uh, few years, we've come to realize that there is potential to infect others even before you become ill yourself. Most likely the, the flu virus is in your saliva. And of course, you may not be actively coughing at that time, but there is a potential to infect others even before you're, you're sick. Uh, and, you know, we use that, uh, you know, when we talk to people because they say, you know, well, if I get sick, I'm going to stay away from, you know, uh, others in my family, uh, for instance, that are healthy. But you might not know that. Yeah. And, it's, and, and also I noted that you could be continue to infect people up to a week after you've actually been sick. Yes. So. You know, five to seven days, you know, into the illness, you can certainly do that. But the, the fact is, is that actually you can... There is some that can affect others even longer, particularly children who have weakened sometimes, and others that have you know chronic illnesses that will not mount an immediate uh, immune response to the uh, to the virus. So you'll go on and infect others even longer. So in the beginning of this um, chat, we, I mentioned that it can be very serious. It can require hospitalization, sometimes even death. What are some of the complications that come along with flu if you get a particularly bad course of it? Well, the, the most common ones are, you know, bacterial infections. Uh, bacterial pneumonia certainly is, is one that, that we see. Uh, so that's a secondary infection over and above the, a secondary the viral infection. infection. But you can also develop a viral pneumonia and develop a serious uh, respiratory distress syndrome with a viral pneumonia from influenza. But of course, it also worsens other underlying, you know, uh, illnesses, cardiopulmonary sorts of things. People that have heart failure, people have chronic lung diseases as well as, you know, other things like asthma, asthma, kidney disease. You know, you can almost go from head to toe and influenza can influence those things. And certainly people with hematologic illnesses, cancers, uh, you know, diabetes, all of those things can be worsened by So it flu. can lead to very severe consequences if yes. you have other comorbidities, other problems. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Dr. Bruce Simmons. We're talking about what you need to know about the flu and what you need to do to keep your family protected. So clearly the main protection, the main protection at this point for flu is? Absolutely. The, it's the flu vaccine. Uh, flu vaccine uh, is something that everyone from age six months on should get, uh, unless you have certain contraindications. Uh, and you know, and you should get it every year. You should get it every year. Unfortunately, flu vaccine is not a long-lasting vaccine. It tends to even diminish in some people at, towards the end of the flu season, uh, which means that, of course, that doesn't mean it's not working. Uh, if it's a good match, it just means that you might still get a little, uh, some small amount of symptoms with it. But um, you have to get it every year. It uh, it diminishes, but also the viruses, the virus types that we're covering change from year to year very that, often. I think that's the critical point. So every year, the flu that comes our way on the northern hemisphere is, looks different. It might be made up of different components, yes. different strains. Sometimes there's a big change, and sometimes there's just a little change. This year, in one component of the vaccine, the H1N1 component, that stayed exactly the same. But the H3N2 component for influenza A, that was really poorly matched last year, of course, was changed 
and we're hopeful that this year will be a much better match and be much more effective across the board. So just to reiterate, people starting at age six months all the way up need to get it? All the way up, yes. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's important that we all get it because, of course, if you come in contact with someone, six, uh, an infant, less than six months, and you haven't been vaccinated and you expose that infant, they're going to suffer serious consequences. And on the other end of the spectrum, older people may not develop as good an immune response and those people, even though they were vaccinated, or perhaps even with high-dose vaccine, they may still be susceptible to influenza. So those of us that decided, well, we just don't need the flu vaccine, I never, you know, perhaps I hear people say, I never got the flu. Or, you know, if I get it, I'll, I'm healthy enough to, 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 to recover. To fight it off. Mm-hmm you are uh, putting others at risk. I think that's a key point, this whole issue of herd immunity, which is touted around lately with all the people who are naysayers about vaccines in general. They don't seem to realize that they're really affecting the entire community and reducing everyone's immunity by re- by refusing to, to really be vaccinated. That's absolutely let me, true. Let me get to um, who should not be vaccinated, though. There are people, just I don't want to run out of time. True. Who, who I mean, uh, of course, again, Infants less than six months should not be vaccinated. Uh, Those that have had severe reactions to influenza vaccine should not be vaccinated. Some people that have egg allergies, and it depends on the 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 level of severity or you know how how allergic they actually are. And then of course you know there are other groups that uh, you know those that that have had. Uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome within six months of receiving the flu vaccine in the past. And so I think if you're ill at the time or you're severely ill or you, or you have and basically with or without a fever, you should probably wait to be vaccinated. That's that true. true as well? I mean, if you have mild illness, say you're, you're the tail end of a cold, you know, you're still kind of stuffy, you, you could get the flu vaccine. But if you're, you know, acutely ill, then certainly not. So what when is flu season, actually? I mean, what does it run on a calendar in the Northern Hemisphere? What are we talking about? Well, we usually talk about, you know, October to May. You know, when... That's a pretty big of, season. Yeah. And, you know, uh, a number of years ago, um, we, you know, we saw H1N1 and, you know, we saw... And it, it kind of came at an unusual time. So, uh, but generally... As the uh, with the onset of cold in the you know, in the northeast, uh, we'll start to see the flu, and we'll continue all the way till uh, till springtime. So, I think this is what is confusing to a lot of people, or it certainly has been to me. How do they determine what? to target against on a given year. I mean, I understand the WHO has several centers throughout the, the world, and they all kind of come together, and then they make recommendations. I mean, how effective has this been in the, in the, in the course of this history? Well, you know, some years it's very effective. Other years it's not as, as effective. But the fact is, is that they have to do this almost as a uh, previous flu season ends. So they, it's really a prediction, and they look at, you know, what flus are circulating because we may have flu season in the, in the fall and winter here in the Northeast, but in the tropical areas, you know, their flu season is exactly the opposite of ours. So there's flu circulating all the time, and they look at all of that information. So one would hope that they're coming up with the right formula on an annual basis. But as you said, there have been years where they have clearly missed the boat That's in true. some ways. That is true. But nevertheless, even last year, I read somewhere that even though it was less effective against the strains that came through, the response or the or the, uh, the illnesses were diminished by having had the shot. Certainly. The, the hope is that even if it's not a good match, you will develop some level of immunity, uh, even a low level, which will uh, give you less severe illness if you actually do get the flu. So bottom line, get vaccinated. Get vaccinated and get vaccinated every year. It doesn't carry over from 
year to year. So get vaccinated every year. Thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Bruce Simmons, Director of Employee and Student Health at Upstate Medical University. Next up, how to get the sleep you need. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. These days, getting a good night's sleep seems to be as elusive as finding the fountain of youth. But if you want to be productive, mentally sharp, balanced, energetic, and live a full life, getting adequate sleep may just be the golden ticket. And joining us with more on the importance of good sleep at different stages of life and to share his advice on how to get a good night's sleep is Dr. Antonio Calabres, professor of neurology at Upstate Medical University, a consultant for the Sleep Center at Upstate's campus at Community, and the co-chair of World Sleep Day, which is sponsored by the World Association of Sleep Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Calabres. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So, World Sleep Day. Now, that's a very important event. Tell us about it. What is it, and why is it so important? World Sleep Day is a program sponsored by the World Association of Sleep Medicine. This is the eighth year that we celebrate World Sleep Day, and the mission of this program is to raise awareness about sleep. This is done in almost 75 countries now, and spread all, all over the world in the five uh, continents. And it's uh, centered each year in a slogan. For instance, this year the slogan is uh, good sleep is a reachable dream, wow. which means <laughs> that uh, we can make a difference. So basically that's a hopeful message <clears throat> and something that we obviously need if it's a worldwide problem to have people believe that, that they can achieve reasonable sleep. Help us understand, why is getting a good night's sleep so essential? It is essential because um, we, we don't know why we sleep, but uh, we do know that we need to sleep well so that we can be fully alert the following day and fully functional. People with uh, poor quality of uh, nocturnal sleep uh, do not function at the peak of their capabilities uh, the following day. And uh, this means uh, physical and uh, mental and uh, emotional uh, capabilities. So it is important to maintain and uh, to be able to sleep well. Unfortunately, there are many individuals who do not sleep well for a variety of reasons. And these are individuals who are encouraged uh, to go to their physician, and their physician will determine whether uh, referral to a sleep uh, specialist is uh, in order. Uh, this happens not only in the United States, but it, it happens uh, all over the world. And uh, lack of sleep or poor sleep is, is an epidemic. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. It's growing all over the world. And I guess you say we don't exactly know why we sleep, but one would know that if you don't sleep, isn't it even life-threatening after a certain amount of time if you don't get adequate sleep? Yes, it is uh, directly, not so much as uh, indirectly. For instance, a person who does not uh, sleep uh, well, who is uh, sleep-deprived, uh, may be very sleepy the following day, and that is, that is a very dangerous uh, proposition behind the wheel of a car or behind the wheel of a truck or uh, uh, as a pilot in an airplane. So it is important uh, to sleep well so that our uh, mental abilities are at uh, their fullest uh, during daytime hours. Now, we are not the only ones who sleep. All vertebrates sleep. So there must be something there that is uh, very, very important uh, for evolution and for uh, growth and uh, development. Uh, so we are not uh, unique in this uh, universe. Uh, some animals require more sleep than others, for instance. Uh, uh, tigers need to sleep uh, 18 hours a day, uh, and so do cats. Uh, whoever has a cat has seen the cat always sleeping. But uh, there are other animals, like the horse, that sleeps uh, two and a half hours in 24 hours, and they sleep um, while they are standing up. Then there are uh, uh, mammals, like uh, whales, 
and they sleep with only one half of the brain. And the reason being that uh, they need to breathe. They need to be to come to the surface every so often. And so this uh, evolution has discovered that sleeping with one half of the brain is effective and saves their life wow. in the sea. That's fascinating. So there are many curiosities about sleep, but uh, the bottom line is that sleep is one of the pillars of good health. So what... When you say what kind, when we talk about obviously it's a pillar of good health and a necessity, what constitutes good sleep at different ages? I mean, is there a, can you make a general statement about how much sleep a human needs? There are uh, several qualities to good quality of sleep. One of them is uh, duration, but also sleep has to have uh, continuity and sleep has to have depth. Duration is, for most uh, humans, anywhere between uh, seven and uh, nine hours. There are a few who sleep a little longer, and there are a few who sleep a little less, but uh, generally between uh, seven and nine hours is the average duration of sleep. But uh, this uh, sleep has to have continuity. Fragmentation of sleep, for whatever reason, uh, snoring or sleep apnea or uh, uh, excessive uh, motor activity or anxiety or nightmares, whatever. Fragmentation of sleep uh, leads to poor quality of sleep, and uh, even a duration of nine hours may not be sufficient to satisfy the brain. And then there is depth. Sleep uh, goes through various stages, and one of them is uh, called uh, stage three, four, and it's important to achieve uh, stage three and four to have good quality sleep, as well as REM sleep, which is the uh, segment of the night when we dream. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with neurologist and sleep specialist, Dr. Antonio Calabres. We're talking about the importance of good sleep and how to get it. So many things interfere with good sleep. People's psychological issues, like you said, anxiety and depression are well known to interfere with sleep. Some medications can do that. Um, some medical problems, asthma, various acid reflux, thing, reflux things like that. But there are specific sleep disorders that cause insomnia, and you have noted in the past when we've spoken that these are the ones we really can make a difference with. Just briefly tell us about those. Certainly, and uh, sleep apnea, which is the uh, condition of uh, disordered or altered uh, breathing during the night, is uh, one of the most uh, prominent conditions that uh, leads to poor quality of uh, nocturnal sleep. Sleep uh, apnea also uh, is a risk factor for a variety of uh, physical problems like uh, heart disease and uh, stroke and uh, high blood pressure. Uh, and what we should know is that uh, we can make a difference. If uh, sleep apnea is uh, properly diagnosed, sleep apnea can be controlled in most uh, instances with uh, uh, equipment, that uh, has been developing over the past 20 to 25 years. There are markers for sleep apnea, snoring, very loud snoring, and gasping for air during the night. Uh, these are markers for sleep apnea. And if anyone does any of this, uh, uh, has any of these symptoms, uh, should uh, visit with their physician because we can make a difference. If um, with, with, sleep, with sleep apnea aside, or any of those medical conditions which clearly need medical input, in the, just the common everyday issues of getting a good night's sleep, what are some of the crucial things that people need to remember and some of the things they should not be doing? In other words, what personal habits interfere with getting a good night's sleep and what are the things we should be doing to get that good night's sleep? Yes, and that's a very good question because most people have a little respect for sleep. We have not been taught how to sleep. Uh, we have been taught how to eat and we have been taught how to exercise, but no one has taught us how to sleep. And it's very important to be disciplined, to have uh, regimentation and to follow uh, guidelines on how to sleep uh, during the night. Anyone can uh, Google the Ten Commandments of uh, Good Sleep and they can go to the website uh, World Sleep Day, and they will find these Ten Commandments. 
for adults and for children, which are the guidelines for good sleep. And some of those, can we just chat a little bit about what some of those things are? For example, do you recommend to people <clears throat> not to take caffeine close to bedtime, for example, or not to necessarily, I mean, something like alcohol initially can make you feel very drowsy, but can also have influence, uh, impact your sleep as well. Tell us more about some of those. Yes, indeed. Uh, caffeine is a very powerful drug. When uh, I hear that people go to certain uh, locations and have a mug of uh, coffee with uh, 500 milligrams of caffeine, I know that they are drugging themselves. If this is done uh, in the evening, uh, this can interfere with night sleep because caffeine stays in the system for 12 hours. So if you have uh, coffee at 12 noon, you can expect to have uh, some caffeine-related uh, 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 symptoms even into 12 uh, midnight. So I would uh, recommend that uh, those who are sensitive to caffeine uh, should not drink any coffee past the uh, time of 6 or 7 p.m. Now, alcohol is a bit different. Alcohol is uh, sedative. And uh, small amounts of alcohol may alleviate anxiety and allow the initiation of sleep. But large amounts of alcohol immediately before going to bed do initiate sleep. But then there is a withdrawal reaction in the middle of the night that will wake up the individual and uh, interfere with continuity of sleep for the remainder of the night. So large amounts of alcohol before going to bed are not recommended. And so is uh, smoking. Smoking is not recommended at any time, but certainly not uh, be before, immediately before going to bed or in bed. In this, for the same reasons, it interferes with sleep. Yes, it does interfere with sleep. So what about some other tips that people generally, I know you mentioned the Ten Commandments. Is it important to have, you mentioned regimen, is it important to have a, try to keep to a similar time that you go to bed, a time that you wake up, regardless of whether it's a weekday or a weekend, for example? Yes, indeed. Uh, discipline, going to bed at the same time and getting up at the same time is very, very important. I, I know that this is boring to ask people, particularly young people, to go to bed at the same time, but on weekends, for instance, but uh, it's the only way to maintain a controlled uh, sleep uh, pattern. The uh, brain becomes very confused if we uh, uh, violate that pattern, and uh, the brain will react uh, with uh, poor quality of nocturnal sleep and fatigue and, sleep and sleepiness if we don't follow that pattern. One hour or more of violation of the discipline will affect our uh, sleep uh, patterns. How about things, we're, so, we're such a plugged in, turned on society. You know, we've, we've got our cell phones going 24 seven. We've got, we have messages coming to us at all hours of the day and night. I mean, how important is it to really uh, sequester or put aside any kind of computer work or any kind of television watching? prior to sleep? I mean, how, you know, how soon or how quickly, how close to bedtime did those have to be stopped? Well, I strongly recommend uh, that uh, television and uh, uh, pagers and uh, telephones and so forth, laptops, the laptops be turned off uh, at night. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, some uh, soft music uh, is uh, indicated to initiate uh, sleep, but uh, anything more than that uh, would um, cause alerting reactions in the brain and would uh, delay the initiation and the maintenance of uh, good quality sleep. So bottom line is, be turn regimented, it off. <laughs> right, turn it off, don't drink caffeine, limit your alcohol consumption, and try to stick to some kind of a regimented schedule. That's right. That is correct. And that's why a program like ours should be in the morning and not in the evening, which it is. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing all this information with me. My guest has been Dr. Antonio Calabas, professor of neurology at Upstate Medical University, and he's a consultant for the Sleep Center at Upstate's campus at Community and the co-chair of World Sleep Day, which is produced by the World Association of Sleep Medicine. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate. State's Health Link on air.
Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. A simple way to be a better parent. Well, dear listeners, when my wife and I were raising our two sons, we had a discussion about whether to have a TV in our kitchen and dining room where we spent most of our time. I thought it would be great to be able to catch a peek at the game while we were doing the nonstop playing, cooking, feeding, cleaning up, diaper changing, playing, babysitting routine of parenting. Hear an adult voice once in a while. My wife, Pammy, who grew up in a family with TVs everywhere, was opposed. Makes for crummy time with the kids, she said. You're watching the tube instead of really being there with them. And there's a great deal of research showing that the quality and quantity of parents' interactions with our kids is very important in the kids' development, both emotionally and intellectually. Pammy won. Our TV lives a lonely life in the basement family room and has for 20 years. <laughs> and it turns out Pammy was right. Researchers put parents and their one, two, or three-year-old kid in the playroom with or without a TV on. With the TV on, mom or dad spent about 20% less time talking and playing with Junior or Missy. And quality-wise, they were less attentive, active, and responsive, less there with their little person. And other research shows that having a TV in your kid's bedroom is bad for their physical health, too. Kids who watch more TV in their bedrooms are more likely to become obese, have more belly fat, higher triglycerides, and overall greater risk of developing heart disease and diabetes. And other research shows a TV in the grown-up bedroom is a sure way to get less sleep with all the bad stuff from that. Emotional distress, weight gain, shorter life even, etc., etc. So, Pammy, I have to admit, turning off the background TV to keep our little guys running around in the foreground was a wonderful idea. They turned out fantastic. Just one question. Does the fact that my parents probably spent more time being with me than yours did with you mean that I benefited from that and I'm smarter and more emotionally mature than you as a result? <laughs> Note to self, not smart enough to keep that question to myself. <laughs> well, I've probably said enough for this week, dear listeners. Let's see how much time Pammy spends looking at and talking to me when I get home. I'm Dr. Rich O'Neill. Thanks for listening. Coming up next, the importance of patient engagement in health outcomes. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on AIM. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. While not taking one's medicines properly can lead to poor outcomes, worsening of both acute and chronic illnesses. It can lead to increased hospitalizations, more emergency room visits, and even death. We'll hear with more on this problem and how to address it are Dr. Mantash Diwan, Distinguished Service Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate Medical University, and Dr. Swati Shevli, a, prof- uh, a resident in psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate Thanks for it. Having us. So non-adherence or not taking your medicines, can cause many problems for patients and even for the healthcare system. Dr. Shevli, explain that. That's exactly right. Um, The numbers look really, really terrible. 125,000 preventable deaths, 20 to 30% of acute illnesses and patients with cancer um, suffer either morbidity or mortality, which means either they have complications or they die. And 50 to 60% people with chronic illnesses, by that I mean diabetes, uh, hypertension, uh, for things that are easily preventable. And this is all because they 
basically are not taking the protocol or the medicines that have been prescribed for them. Uh, that's exactly right, but I don't think that's all, and that's exactly why we decided to research. I think it's because they don't quite understand what it is that they have to take, and so the entire purpose of this paper was that it's a team effort. And you've alluded to a paper, and we're going to talk more about it, but basically I've invited, we've invited you here because both you and Dr. Dewan have taken a part in a kind of a review of the literature and a paper trying to examine this entire problem. Mm-hmm. Dr. Dewan, what type of, non, what type of in, uh, impact does non-adherence, meaning not taking your medicine, do with the, the physician-patient relationship? How does that impact it? I think it has a huge impact because it frustrates everybody in the system. Uh, The patient is frustrated because they continue to suffer, and the doctor is frustrated because he knows what to do and has prescribed the right prescription but sees that the patient is struggling, doing probably worse. Um, And then there is the relationship that suffers because of that where there's, in some sense, an element of blame. Uh, We're all human, and we would like to do well. And so then the question is, you know, is the doctor not doing his job or is the patient not doing the job? But the sad part is, even if you have the best technology, the best system, you get the diagnosis right, get the uh, treatment right, non-adherence will defeat everything. Mm. And what's shocking to me, Dr. Shevley, is that um, when you mentioned 20 to 30 percent of patients that are being treated for acute illnesses and cancer basically have been shown to not take their full regimen, and up to 50 to 60% of people with chronic conditions. This is a real problem. It is, and we're losing billions of dollars uh, in healthcare costs because of something as simple as not being able to take your medications. So it used to be called non-compliance. I remember the days when we would talk about patients who basically were non-compliant, but the language has changed. Now it's being called non-adherence. What does this change in language reflect? Why did we change the terminology? Language is extremely important, and if the idea we try to convey is that we, it's not a blame game, compliance essentially implies that we have the right idea and we're going to tell you what to do, and then you're going to do it. And if you don't do it, you're non-compliant. Uh, whereas adherence and non-adherence really it focuses on making sure there is a shared understanding Uh, The term we prefer really is collaboration uh, because that's even closer to uh, the idea that we have, which is we're playing on the same team. Uh, We want to make sure we're doing our job right, and we want to make sure that you understand how to take your medications and then take them. But um, Dr. Duan, this is not a new problem, obviously. We mentioned it's been talked about probably forever, as long as there have been doctors and patients. And they've attempted over the many, many years that this has existed to try to change this and attempted with many different approaches. Tell us about anything that you know that has been attempted and whether it's been successful to what degree. Well, you're right. It's a very age-old problem because we are all human and we don't like doing anything every day for the rest of our lives, uh, such as take treatment for diabetes or hypertension. Uh, We don't necessarily feel unwell every day, so we don't think of taking a medicine. And so I think that it's a very easy thing to understand from the patient's point of view. Uh, Things that we've tried to be helpful, one is education, where you tell them the importance of uh, why you should be treated every day to prevent something that might occur 20 years from now. A hard concept, but we try that. There is the uh, whole industry that has grown around reminding people on when you should take your medicine. So you've got smart pill boxes like smartphones now, which will beep, which will literally uh, send you a text message if you miss it. And so these are all programmable, um, very interesting, but they don't really work as well as we would like them to. It seems like a simple solution that has not worked. So in fact, despite all this effort, we still have these very high percentages of people mm-hmm. who are basically non-adherent or not taking their medications. That's You've correct. both done um, a review of the literature. And what did you find, Dr. Shevley? So the other things that haven't exactly worked, but we continue to invest a lot of money in is after-visit summaries, um, handing out bunches of papers, uh, asking patients to read about their illnesses. And uh, there isn't really enough in the literature that says that it works. 
And it's now part of the whole um, Affordable Care Act and meaningful use for doctors to do this. Right. And the the part that we miss out on is people have learning disabilities. Not everyone can read. Not everyone understands uh, complex words that are printed out for them just because they are printed out. And even if they make sense of what's written without diagrams, people really don't make sense of what's going on. So that's what we found. Uh, other things that have been tried and have had some minimum amount of success are cassette tapes, so recordings of what happened that day. And we found that things need to be specific in order for them to work. They have to be tailored to the patient. Uh, generic stuff does not exactly work. Generic stuff, right. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with psychiatrists Dr. Mantosh Dewan and Dr. Swati Shevli. And we're talking about techniques to improve patient adherence to their medication regimen. So let's try to kind of give us some things that you found or your recommendations, more about your recommendations, mm-hmm. as to what could make a difference. You've already alluded to the fact that perhaps diagrams as opposed to written instructions. But back up a minute from there, it strikes me that before this pressure to have written summaries, most physicians would basically verbally communicate these facts to a patient. And I can see where that clearly would would fall short of the mark for many, many reasons. Why don't you tell us more about your own experience with that? So it's one of the things that um, I think is critical in doing well is to have a relationship with the patient that is uh, both transparent, clear, and where both parties understand. So we are recommending not just collaboration, but informed collaboration. The information must be conveyed to the patient completely candidly. Uh, You can imagine coming in and getting a diagnosis of cancer. Anything you say after that is not something that they will either hear or remember. And so even if you said, you know, we found it very early, you're going to do fine, the person walks away thinking they're going to die that evening. So I think we need to be sensitive to how we convey information, when we convey information, and really give the person time to process it. So we recommend giving the information, giving something in writing, but more importantly saying, can you go and talk to your family? Can you talk to some loved ones? come back, and then we make a decision on treatment. It's not like, here are the choices. you got radiation or chemotherapy. We, can, we recommend chemotherapy. You start tomorrow. Um, rarely is it that urgent. And so we recommend go home, talk about it. Let's make another appointment. And then we will look at the options again. And very importantly, it's your body. It's your life. It's your choice. It's, we, we give you the recommendations and the information, including if, it, if this was my daughter, I would do X. But the point is, you still have to decide. You may go with X plus Y or just Y, uh, which may be reasonable choices. I think that that timing idea is is crucial. I think that's something that is so important because, as you said, even if it's not something as dire as a cancer diagnosis, quite often in the context of an initial evaluation or or some finding that maybe isn't quote-unquote normal, people's anxiety is obviously raised and their ability to process and retain that information has got to be really compromised. So another appointment and the opportunity to really chat through and figure out what needs to be done seems crucial. Um, And let me just add one other thing. When they come back and when they make a decision, overtly saying, I'd recognize that I have X disease and that I have chosen to take Y treatment Overtly saying that improves adherence markedly. So having we assume the- it, but asking the patient to say that uh, gives them the ownership of both their diagnosis and treatment, and then you support their version of the truth rather than dictating it. That's really crucial, I, I think. I think it's very, very important, and we don't often do it. It's very simple to do also. doesn't take more time. And one of the things that I think goes along with it that I found from some of your findings or, or tips, Dr. Shevley, was this idea that to even ask the patient to summarize their concept of their current status and what then maybe needs to be done Is that along the same lines? That's exactly right. Um, Part of the issue is patients feel embarrassed to ask about 
things that they don't understand when us doctors are being uh, doctors and speaking in medical jargon. Um, it doesn't always make sense to the person sitting across from us. We continue to do it despite understanding it. Uh, and having the patient speak in their own language gives us a good sense of knowing exactly where the patient is in terms of um, their own story. And like Dr. Devan said, helps in them owning their story. Um, so summarizing is really important. And the other piece that's really important is expecting them to not be able to comply or adhere to treatment. And so when they come back, uh, not only during the initial visit, but when they come back, we expect them to have not taken their medications for various reasons. And once you expect that, the quality of the interaction changes because you're no longer blaming people. You're just expecting them to be human and you want to know exactly what it is that you need to do in order to make it so that they can take their medications. So be it side effects that they cannot talk about because they're embarrassing or because they don't even know their side effects um, that make them not feel so good about taking the medications. Or maybe there are other reservations about having the illness itself. Uh, that comes into conversation once you assume that people may or may not be able to take their medications. And that also reduces the notion of blame, as you said, Dr. Duan, that in terms of the patient-doctor relationship, that the expectation is that they may have difficulty in complying, adhering, what have you, then the next visit or further visits, the whole relationship shifts in a sense where mm -hmm. there isn't this idea that you're not, you're not listening to me, you're not following right. my direction, but rather what seems to be the issue here? I mean, you, you would come with an open mind. How about the notion of simplifying the regimens if possible? Because sometimes I don't think it's always as clear to a physician if you say, take it every other day. I mean, that alone for even someone who's highly educated might find that very difficult. Absolutely. And every physician uh, assumes that theirs is the only medication the patient is taking. Most people are seeing two, three different physicians and at least on two, three pills, if not more. And so um, preferably once a day dosing is much better than two or three times a day and again to reiterate the feeling of being understood is probably the most important piece about being able to take your medications as directed and so focusing on that is the most important part. So that's the bottom line. The bottom line is quickly stated. Bottom line is you've got to work with the patient and the patient is in charge because it's their life and their disease and their treatment. Very well said. Thanks for coming in and sharing this data with us. It's very, very informative. My guests have been Dr. Montash Dewan, Distinguished Service Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate Medical University, and Dr. Swati Shevli. She's a resident in the Department of Psychiatry, also at Upstate. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Pam Freeman works in the medical school at SUNY Upstate as a standardized patient, teaching medical students how to acquire the skills of interviewing patients and really listening to their stories. Her poem, Where Does It Hurt?, is a remarkable example of the story within a story. Where does it hurt? Well, since you asked, remember you said, tell me where it hurts. I got thinking about it. You already know the places that show up on the scans and the other places those places gossip with, snickering in their cruel, contorting language of pain. But since you asked, and I got thinking about it, it also hurts in my daughter. Her eyes, the sad sky of this room, and in her little son, who clutches a plastic army man and is too young to understand, as we tritely put it, although so am I, if you must know, and I bet you are too. It also hurts, I'm told, in my daughter's resentful ex-husband. Of course, everything seems specifically to take aim at him. His resentments I actually do understand, or at least I get where they're coming from. I always did and wished I could have warned her there wasn't a thing to be done about them. The world would simply multiply his misery, and she'd keep taking on half. But it wouldn't have made a difference, 
because love makes you believe you can fix life itself. She wheels her guilt in here and quietly hooks it up, one more machine to supervise me, drawing its own conclusions. Me? I'm past warning anyone at this point. Nobody wants it. And besides, do I look wise or successful in this wrinkled calico tent of a hospital gown, my eyebrows gone hairless, lending an expression of perpetual blank amazement? No, dispensing wisdom is not my place anymore, which leads me to wonder what my place is, if I in fact have one. Pardon all this blah blah, it's the illusion of ego, the lifeline of I am. I mean, right? I am, aren't I? Right. So therefore, I must matter. But what if it's the other way around? And when you cease to matter, you cease to exist. And the language in your body is trying to say, you're excused now. That's where it hurts, since you asked. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we get the latest update on this year's flu season. Plus, if you're having restless nights, what can you do to help get the rest you need? And we'll get the latest advice about treating prostate cancer. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it. That's on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks so much for listening. <music>